Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. This sermon is part of our series entitled Glorious Perspective, where we will see how the Sermon on the Mount outlines God's plan for a life of joy. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org. Amen. Amen. You can find a seat this morning. Good morning, church. I'm so excited to be sharing with you. If you're new to City Church, my name is Justin, lead pastor here. We've been walking for seven weeks now through a teaching series on the most important and most famous uh, passage of uh, Scripture. Well, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, but certainly the most famous speech ever given in human history, the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking really at just the first eight phrases of this great speech that Jesus gives And those phrases are known as the Beatitudes. And so we've been walking through Beatitude after Beatitude after Beatitude. And we find ourselves with two left, folks, two left. We're close. And so uh, it's exciting. If you've missed any of these, you can spend the rest of your day reviewing them. At ourcitychurch.org, you can go and listen to all six if you want. uh, Or you can not do that. But either way, that'll help you catch up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. We'll start there this morning. Is everybody doing good this morning? Good, good, me too. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's our sermon today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. Holy Spirit, we come to you right now studying the scripture. We believe that this is uh, inspired by God. We believe that uh, these words are from heaven, that Jesus spoke them, and that they are life. And so I pray that you would make them come alive in us today. In the name of Jesus, we ask you. Amen. 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 I can remember one of the most thrilling Christmases of all time for me as a young boy. It was in the middle of the 80s. 80s were awesome. And uh, I remember, remember the middle of the 80s, and uh, mom and dad got me and my brother a Nintendo, the original. Did anybody have the original Nintendo? Come on. Glory to God. Yes. So, so the original Nintendo came with two particular games. I don't know if you remember this. One was Mario Brothers, right? And the other was Duck Hunt. Yeah. And so I remember as a kid going through the box and being like, oh, cool, Mario Brothers. And then it was like, oh, there's a gun in the box. There's a gun in the box, and I can shoot things? Like, this is awesome. I remember the, the white and orange gun. I don't know if you remember the gun, but it was, ama- it was just amazing. It was just the coolest thing, so exciting, especially little boys like to shoot things. Some little girls, too, but just enjoy shooting things. You know, my kids, a friend came over a few months ago and brought a spear gun. Thank you, Sean Sabella, if you know Sean. He brought a spear gun. Hey, kids, you want to shoot a spear gun? And so he comes over with this spear gun, and, uh, and, and my boys are like, of course we want to shoot a spear gun. So there we are in the backyard shooting this spear into the tree, you know, and it was like the most amazing thing. My kids are still mentioning it now and then. They love, you know, shooting things. And uh, in previous generations, when you come to this idea of war, we're talking about peacemakers today, when you come to this idea of war, uh, war in past generations was a pretty glamorous thing. It was a glorious thing. People spoke often about the glories of war, about the beauty of the splendor of war. And in massive battles, uh, you know, relatively few people would die because uh, there wasn't these massive armies like we know today. And so they would have these major, you know, uh, nation-shifting battles, and they were, in the eyes of many, a very glorious, glamorous thing. Well, the 1900s changed that forever. 
in the early 1900s, World War II came around and nation after nation jumped in and 15 million people died in that war and people hadn't seen anything like that before. And then just a few years later, World War II breaks out and 60 million people die in World War II. And so war in the course of 100 years goes from this glamorous, exciting, sort of like invigorating like you know, thing to this terrifying disastrous, nation-destroying reality. And we have all grown up in a generation that knows war as something that is brutal, something that is painful, something that is ugly. We've seen the pain of war. In the past 3,400 years of human history, 3,132 of them have had recorded human wars. So that's just about all of them. So uh, basically, people have been at war nonstop. And in our generation, we know war in a different way than any other generation's ever known it, right? I mean, we know war as this unpredictable, chaotic reality where war has shifted from the battlefield to the ball field and the movie theater and the elementary school and on and on and on places that were never seen as a place where violence and warfare could break out now ideologies and uh, individuals with uh, you know a very distorted view of life have taken war to every corner of the world and uh, it's an attitude that is um, pervasive in our world right now that life is unpredictable that we don't know what's going to happen next that we don't know uh, if there's safety, right? And I remember um, about a year and a half ago now, 2 a.m. in the morning, laying in bed. We live in New Haven, and I woken up to gunshots. So I, uh, I get up, you know, and I look out my window. Nobody's dead right in front of my house. And so I get out of my house, and I kind of walk out in the street. You know, all I had was my ninja skills. I didn't have any gun or anything. And I'm just out there, and I'm like, Okay, I don't know what's going on, but there's no, like, why'd you go outside? Well, if there was somebody, like, dead, I wanted to, you know, help him out or, you know, come back to life or something, you know. And so I'm out there, and my neighbor's out there. We're both out there in our pajamas, like, I don't know. Are you dead? No. Are you? No. All right, well, let's call the police. And they got there, you know, four or five hours later. <laughs> and uh, just kidding, we love New Haven police. God bless them. But uh, anyways, it was tough, you know. And, and, and the next night, I'm laying in bed, and boom! My eyes open up at 2 a.m. Does that ever happen to you? Something like this where something messes with you. And now the next night after that, boom, 2 a.m. And the next night after that, boom, 2 a.m. And for like weeks, I was waking up every single night, 2 in the morning, just like clockwork. My body just waking up just with this sense of terror, this sense of uncertainty. And uh, we prayed through that. I'm free, by the way. No more 2 a.m. things. But, but it was a season of life where it was happening all the time. And there was this uncertainty, this insecurity. I don't know if you ever felt that before, this fear, this worry. There's something inside of you that is aware of the fact that life is not supposed to be be like this. Life is not supposed to be this, this series of tense uncertainties, right? There's got to be something better than thinking and feeling like that, living in a state of perpetual uncertainty and warfare. What comes into your mind when you hear the word peacemaker? Maybe you've watched the Hunger Game movies too many times, and you see the guy in the suit who is a peacekeeper. I don't know if you know those guys with the helmets. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And they're, they're known as peacekeepers, but they just like kill everybody, you know? Those guys, maybe that's what pops in your head. Or, or maybe you see like a, a hippie holding a flag, you know, saying, all we are saying. Maybe you were that hippie, you know, that's okay if you were. But, uh, you know, a few years ago, my wife and I, uh, just recently actually, uh, and just uh, two nights ago, I guess, it was like 11 o'clock at night, and we did the only thing you can do 
at 11 o'clock at night that you can talk about at church. And uh, actually, we talk about everything at church. But anyway, uh, we, we yeah, I'm getting myself in trouble today. We watched The Wonder Years, all right? That's what we did, okay? We watched The Wonder Years. Anybody ever seen The Wonder Years before? Oh, bless God. That's a good show. So anyways, we were watching The Wonder Years, and Kevin Arnold was staging a, a uh, you know, a whatever, you know, trying to stop the war, a peace, a peace uh, event. And so he was doing it at school, and it's this big deal. Maybe that's what pops in your head when you think of peacemaker. Maybe, uh, maybe you think of a gun. There is a gun known as the peacemaker. Some of you may know that. The most famous uh, uh, um, revolver gun was known as a peacemaker that settled the Wild West. So if Jesus is saying, blessed are the peacemakers, and all these things might be popping in our heads, what is he going after here? What does Jesus want us to understand about peacemakers? Because Jesus, it seems, some would interpret him as this pacifist who isn't violent or doesn't agree with violence, and yet we see him taking a whip and driving the money changers out of the temple. One of his core followers on his core team is Simon the Zealot, a guy who is all about overthrowing the government, and uh, you know this was a guy on his core team. So Jesus, it seems, has an opinion about peacemaking that, is maybe a little more complicated or more nuanced than just we're always for all, you know, peace at all times. But this idea of peacemakers is crucial to understanding who we are as followers of Jesus. So what is he after? What is he after? Well, Hebrew culture for generations has understood this idea of shalom. Somebody say that word with me, shalom. It's very, it's very fun word to say, really. You should try it. You should lighten up a little bit and try it. One more time, shalom. Yeah, shalom, you know, Jews have been saying shalom to one another as a greeting for generations, and shalom is used 230 times in the Old Testament, and it's a word that's translated in our Bibles as peace, okay? Peace, but this idea of shalom is far more complex than just simply peace. It's not just, you know, the absence of war. Shalom is a much more uh, broad topic than just the absence of war. Shalom means, in the Hebrew, it means everything functioning in in harmony the way that the creator created it. It's a reality or a state of being in which there is health, there is functionality, there is interdependence, there is nothing missing, nothing lacking. This is the shalom reality. This is the reality of peace. Nothing missing, nothing lacking. Think of it like this. Your home has a bunch of stuff that runs on electricity, right? You've got a shaver, and you've got a, a toaster, and you've got a hairdryer, and you've got a laptop. You've got all these things, and they plug into the wall, and your entire house system is built on a particular circuitry that enables these things that were built to operate on that circuitry work, right? And if you have no power in your house, all that stuff becomes just a big pile of junk. It's useless. You all tracking with that? Yes? And so that's the way shalom works. It's all built on one power source known as God, and that power source fuels the functionality of everything. And so God created a universe in which his peace reigns over everything, his shalom. Nothing missing, nothing lacking. And so from photosynthesis to the changing of seasons to human relationship, it all interacts in this revelation of peace. Nothing missing, nothing lacking. Harmony, interdependence. Now, this shalom was fractured. We're all aware of that. And what we're told in Scripture is that war didn't start with people. 
War is actually a concept that goes beyond the human race, okay? So before human beings were created, according to Scripture, there was already war. God created the heavens and he created the earth. Two realities, one that we can see here in the natural and one that we cannot see in the unseen reality. Scripture teaches that there was already war, that there was a spiritual war between spiritual beings in rebellion against their creator. And then human beings are created in God's shalom and then tempted to engage in the war that had already been raging in the spiritual realm. This is the stage that is set according to scripture. This is the view of reality that the scripture teaches. And so we are brought into a position now as human beings where our great, 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 great grandfather ancestors had chose to rebel against God, which introduced sin. Sin then fractured our relationship with God. And when Adam rebelled against God's will and decided to be God himself, he now declared war on God. Okay? And so that war on God spread into his own soul. And before he knew it, Adam didn't know who he was. And so he didn't just have a war on God problem. He had an inner war problem. All right? That's why it says that he realized he was naked and he was ashamed and he didn't know what to do. He immediately didn't know who he was because he had been connected from the source. Okay? And so war with God started from sin. And then war with self grew out of the war with God. And it only took how many generations before? For that war extended to my brother. Just one, right? If you know the story, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel. It only takes one generation for it to go from war to war with God, war with self, and now war with my brother. And we have been at war with our brother ever since. The human race has been fighting our brothers ever since. And so this is the story that Scripture gives us so that we can begin to understand how deep the roots of war run. And then the entire story changes on a dime. And God introduces an X factor. He introduces a change agent. And that change agent is the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is the God-man, fully God, fully man, is introduced into the equation. And he comes to defeat the enemy and bridge the gap of peace between God and the human race. Let me show you in scripture exactly how Jesus did it. Philippians chapter 2 verse 5, the apostle Paul speaks about this. It'll be on the screen. Check it out. It says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather, be, he made himself nothing by taking the very, ser, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself be, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Stay with me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what Christians believe is that Jesus came as our representative and he bridged the gap between humanity which was sinful and divinity which was perfect and by being the God man he became the go-between and sacrificing his life for us he became our righteousness so that we could then be reconciled to God and he did three things in particular the first thing is he initiated right it says that he was in the form of God but he didn't count godliness as something to be grasped or something to be used for his own advantage so he made himself nothing by becoming flesh. Think about that. Divinity becoming humanity. That's the greatest demotion that's ever been seen, right? And so this God-man Jesus first initiates 
gets reconciliation. We could not get to him. He comes to us. And then he personally sacrifices, right? We see the pattern of the great peacemaker here. If we want to understand what peacemaking is, probably a good idea to go to the source, right? The chief peacemaker. And so Jesus, the chief peacemaker, first initiates reconciliation, and then he personally sacrifices on the cross. And then it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. It's been 2,000 years. Think about your neighborhood, your place of business, and uh, your family. Has every knee bowed, every tongue confessed yet? There's a few left, right? And so Jesus, for 2,000 years, the scripture says he's not being uh, lazy. He's not, being, uh, uh, he's not wasting time or waiting it to, just to cause us to be slow or being slow. Instead, the scripture says, Peter says that uh, he is being patient so that more can come to repentance. And so the third thing we see in this peacemaker Jesus is he's enduring a long time, enduring He's enduring. So he's initiating reconciliation. He's sacrificing and he's enduring. Also that he can give the greatest gift to the human race that's ever been given. Let's look at it in reference to this idea of shalom. In John chapter 14, Jesus talks about peace. He says it like this in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. So there's there's next two words with me. Peace I leave with you. My peace, you kind of missed that peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let your hearts, uh, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I've got a gift for you. I'm going to give you my peace. Hold on a second. Jesus is going to give you his peace. He's going to give you his shalom. So Jesus has perfect, unbroken relationship with the Father. Jesus is the one and the only who has this ongoing unity within the Trinity, this fellowship, this relationship, nothing missing, nothing lacking. And Jesus says, because of the gospel, this is really important, stay with me, because of the gospel, I'm giving you my shalom as your representative. Now, all of the inner peace, all of the nothing missing, nothing lacking, all of the completion that I as God the Son have, I am giving you that same relational status before God the Father. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to me in the gospel so that now my wickedness is paid for on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to me. So now I'm given his shalom. Nothing missing, nothing lacking. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, we can clap about that. Thanks, Kyvon. Just get a little clap started. Yeah, wow, that's really big, right? That is the great scandal of grace. It's the great mystery of true religion. Religion. It is the glory of the gospel, right? That I can be whole, I can be safe, I can be in harmony with God because of the sacrifice of Christ. Now I know what you're thinking. You're saying, that's really nice theoretically, that's really nice in covenant, but what about in practice? You know, I'm kind of nervous about this, I'm scared about that, I've got these problems, I got this issue, I got this health thing, I got this, I got that. How do I live above it all in shalom? How do I live in this perspective of nothing missing and nothing lacking when I'm in a world that's missing and lacking? Well, this isn't the first beatitude. And what we found is that these beatitudes grow in glory, right? And these beatitudes ascend in revelation. And so each beatitude springs forth from the last one. And so if we want to understand how do I practice shalom, we must begin where Jesus began. We begin with poverty of spirit. 
the deep revelation that I have nothing to offer God, that I'm helpless, and that God is not going to cure my helplessness. He's going to use it as the door into his presence. And so I'm broken. I'm helpless. There's a darkness in me that I can't fix, that I can't cure. And if you still think enough self-help things can fix you, you're never going to see God because the truth is you must come to the end of self. That's what poverty in spirit's all about. I don't have anything to offer you. Even the good things in me are corrupted by the selfish things in me, God. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And this leads to the biblical revelation of mourning. The biblical revelation of mourning or how Paul puts it, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow which wells up inside of me, which causes me to realize that, God, I need you to forgive me. I desire restitution. I long for true accountability. I want to embrace even the consequences of my sin and cultivate a new hate for that sin. And so poverty of spirit grows into a concept of biblical mourning. And then from that, this conviction that God cares for me. If you missed this one, you can review it. God cares for me. Remember the horse we talked about, the Mustang that fights against his owner, only to realize eventually that that owner cares for him, that he has his best interests in mind. And so when I was poor in spirit, God gave me his kingdom. And when I mourned, God comforted me. And so this new revelation starts to stir in me. God cares for me. Scripture calls it meekness because now I don't have to live my life like I'm number one. I can live like he's number one because the number one of all number ones cares for me like I'm number one. And so he can care for me. And because he cares for me, I can live selflessly. And then out of that meekness grows this hunger. Whoa, if God cares for me so deeply, he's already ordained that I can be like him. And he is God himself. He is life itself. I long to be more like him. I hunger for righteousness. And then out of that hunger for righteousness starts to grow this capacity to be merciful, this awareness of the needs of others, this compassion that comes from heaven, and this desire to act on that compassion just as the good Samaritan did. I find within myself the capacity for mercy no longer having the right to hold a grudge because the one who has fully forgiven me did not hold a grudge. And so I release my right to hold an offense and I become biblically merciful and then God starts to develop inside of us a pure heart and that purity of heart comes from the revelation that I no longer have to be self-centered and I no longer have to live in the fear of man because I have gospel approval right you remember this last week and I have gospel responsibility and because I have those things God purifies my motives and I begin to see him and out of all of these diverse and unique and specific revelations guess what we find growing in our hearts. Shalom. Nothing missing. Nothing lacking. That peace of God. I remember hearing one person describe shalom like a tapestry. Many different strings interconnected, woven together. We see the many strings of shalom that develop our psychological well-being, developing to a place where we can operate in a consistent attitude of peace with God. You can turn to somebody and just tell them, well, that's really good. That's really good. I'm starting to see it. I'm starting to see it. Or you could be more honest and just say, I'm not seeing it yet, but I'm really believing something's going to happen today. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3, the Amplified Bible, I love this. It says, let the peace, the soul harmony, which comes, that wasn't e-harmony, soul harmony, which comes from Christ, rule. Act as umpire continually in your hearts, deciding and settling with finality all questions that arise in your minds. In that peaceful state to which as members of Christ's one body, you've also been called to live. And be thankful, appreciative, giving praise to God always. I love that. Let the peace, the soul harmony which comes from Christ, rule, rule, rule in your heart. And so what we find is according to the gospel, 
Jesus has given us his peace. He's given us this reality of shalom. He's given us this right standing with God. Now, that's wonderful. He's given us peace. And then as we cultivate that attitude of peace, we now develop not just peace with God, that is the source, and then we find peace with ourselves. I don't have to live selfishly anymore. I don't have to look out for number one. I don't have to live because of the fear of man. I don't have to live for any of those things. I've found peace with myself. So two of the three realities of peace have been discovered. Peace with God, peace with self. But this is not what the scripture says, blessed are the peacetakers. It says, blessed are the peacemakers. In other words, there's a third revelation, a higher reality to this whole peace thing. And it's when you and I find the capacity not just to embody peace ourselves, but to spread it to spread supernatural shalom, to be able to spread it. So how can I spread peace? Peacemaker, that word maker in the Greek, it means to construct, to produce, peace producers, shalom carriers, shalom causers, those who carry or cause shalom. So how can you become a carrier of shalom? Well, I'm not in the construction business, okay? So everything I've learned, I've either asked someone who is, or I read it online, okay? So, so let me just try to use a little illustration. If you're in the construction business, if you are part of construction, and I say something stupid here, just have mercy upon me, okay? But in the world of construction, there are various different uh, jobs, right? There are plumbers, and there are carpenters, and there are electricians, and there are all different HVAC guys, and all these different individuals that work in the realm of construction. Yes, we're all aware of this. This is a reality in our world, yes. And so one particular job that seems to attract the wild at heart, or the brave among us is the electrical lineman. If you're an electrical lineman here, God bless you. The electrical lineman, if you don't know this, are the individuals who take the power from the source, which is the power plant, and drag it on power lines to the homes and the businesses all over the place. All right, so they, they have the enviable task of climbing up these tiny little poles and connecting with 13,800 volts of electricity and hoping that they don't die. Also, you can watch Netflix tonight. Right? Isn't that wonderful? You can just turn to the person next to you and say, so glad for that. Because I know that you're uh, planning on. So that's what, that's what uh, these guys do. Now, one particular technique that these linemen use, which intrigued me, that I want to share with you today, because I know you all came to church to learn about electrical linemen. One of the things that these electrical linemen do is uh, they call it the, uh, the bare hand work. Okay, it's a pretty unique name. And what the lineman does is uh, the lineman is going to repair or replace or extend a line that is live. 13,800 volts pulsating through it. I talked to one guy. He said one day it was raining, which became a conductor. Just getting a few feet from the line felt like 10,000 little bumblebees were stinging him in the face. This is serious power, right? And so these linemen have developed a way to uh, actually work on the lines while they're live, while they're hot. Here's how they do it. They call it bare hand work. What they do is they have a special conductive suit. All right, so they have a suit that they put on. Come on, give me a little help here. They have a suit that they put on. Is that an arm? Is that a leg? No, I think that's an arm. They have a suit that they, no, that's my leg, that they put on. I look really good in this suit, by the way, just so you know. And so the suit is actually conductive of electricity. What that means is it's 75% fire retardant material and 25% steel. Okay, and so they actually have socks and shoes that go with it. They have a little 
hood that goes over the top and gloves. And the lineman is now in a conductive suit, okay? And so he's got this conductive suit. He's got this conductive suit on. And, uh, and what the lineman actually does is he then, check this out, they call it bonding on. He then bonds to the line and intentionally energizes his body to the same voltage as the line. All right, And so the conductivity of his suit allows the electricity to move all around him without totally frying him. And he's able then to extend up and work on these high-powered lines without getting fried because the suit that he's wearing conducts the electricity that he's dealing with, okay? Interestingly enough, they, in the electrician world, they call this, they say that the lineman has taken on the same potential as the line. Okay, he's taken, that's the electrical term, taken on the same potential. Listen, I came here this morning to tell you that you're not the source, okay? You're not the power plant. You can turn to somebody, just tell them you're not the power plant. That's good for you to know. You're not the power plant. You tried that, didn't work out so well. You're not the power plant. You're not the source. You don't have the source of life in yourself. It's not just look within and find your inner you. No, 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 no. You need to get rid of the inner you so you can find the true you, which is in Christ. And so it's not that you're the source. And you used to be a dark house, but if you've met Christ, then some lineman dragged that line and connected you, and now all your plugs are working, and your toaster and your heater and all these different things are operating because you're in the source now. So you used to be that. So you've got peace with God and you've got peace with self at least you're cultivating and growing these realities as you develop in the revelation of the beatitudes but now there's a third level of this peace life that's required of you you are invited into peacemaking and Jesus says happy are the peacemakers you'll find a higher level of happiness somebody when you realize that God's called you to be a shalom carrier so what do you have to do well you got to put on the conductive suit friend you have to put on the perfect righteousness of Jesus. You have to put on the blameless, spotless, make sure it covers your hands, make sure it covers your feet, even put the socks on and the hood and cover every aspect of who you are with the righteousness of Jesus. And once you've got that conductive suit on, you can begin to bring peace to others. And hey, don't miss this. You carry the same potential as the source. You carry the same potential as the source. So you drag that line and you connect it to others. And the scripture says, you remember the second half of this, happy or blessed are the peacemakers, the shalom carriers, for they, don't miss this today, they shall be called sons of God. What a revelation. They shall be called sons of God. Now, in the Greek, this is interesting. There's two different words that are used here for children or sons. One means uh, an intimate relationship with a father. That's usually translated children. And that's wonderful. It doesn't actually, that's not the word that's here. This is the word sons, and it speaks of a representative, an individual that looks like his father, a person that stands in the same authority as his father. And so what it's saying is that when you put on the righteousness of Christ and live your life to carry shalom in every different way and live your life to advance the nothing missing, nothing lacking revelation in your family and in your job and in your future and in your friendships. When you actually take on this responsibility as your calling in life, you're not called to be a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, a husband, a wife. All those things are beautiful and important, but there's a higher something that God's put in you and it's to be a shalom carrier, a 
peacemaker, one who's at peace with God himself, one who's at peace with himself because of God, and one who then carries God to the ends of the earth, putting on the righteousness of Christ and distributing his peace. What I'm saying is your calling is in the connection. Go ahead and tell two people that just to get it in your head. Your calling, go ahead, turn them, your call, have a little phone me. Your calling is, I don't want to say it, but I'll say it anyway. Your calling is in the connection. Your calling is in the connection. Your calling is in the connection. In other words, you will be happiest and you will be most fulfilled. You're made in the image of God. That's how you were designed as a human being. And your highest calling is to carry his glory. And when you put on his righteousness and begin to distribute his peace, you now start looking like your father. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You can just turn to someone and tell them, I'm getting more encouraged. You can just tell them, I'm getting more encouraged today. I really am. So how do I practice peacemaking? Now, now I want to get real practical here. Peacemaking is not something you can do in the natural. It's something that you have to do in the supernatural, okay? Peacemaking is not something that just comes to you naturally. It's something that must come to you supernaturally. And it grows out of the revelation that we've been discussing over the last six weeks. And so how do I become a peacemaker? Well, you look at the model of Jesus that we heard in the beginning of this sermon in Philippians chapter 2, and you apply it to your own life. So let me give you three things quickly. You can jot them down. The first is initiate reconciliation, just like Jesus did. Jesus left heaven and initiated reconciliation. You've got to initiate reconciliation. Question for you, are you quick to apologize when you're wrong? If you're sitting next to your spouse and they're not, you can kick them if you want. Are you quick to apologize when you're wrong? Are you quick to admit that you're wrong? Are you quick to seek the person out? Even if you've committed 10% of the crime and they've committed 90% of the crime, are you still quick to acknowledge your issue? Are you quick to acknowledge your problem? Because peacemakers are those who initiate reconciliation. Think about anybody in your life in which you are estranged from them right now. You are at tension with them. Is there something you can do to heal that tension? Now, it's very important to realize that purity of heart comes before peacemaking. Did you notice that? Purity of heart comes before peacemaking. James says it like this, that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. That's very important. In other words, you never compromise purity of heart for the sake of peacemaking. It's not peace at any cost, okay? If the cost is compromising your character, then you go as far as you can without compromising your character. If the cost of making peace is lying to your boss, or the cost of making peace is doing something dishonorable, then you can't go there. And there may be things that you cannot reconcile in this life, and we'll talk about that next week for those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There are going to be things that when you combine purity and peacemaking that you can't reconcile. But in those moments, like what Paul says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with others. And so there's something you can do, and that's go as far as you can without compromising your purity with God. So initiates responsibility. Simple question for you to consider this morning. What do I need to initiate now for the sake of peace? What do I need to initiate now? You've been thinking, well, you know, uh, they didn't come to me, so uh, I'm not going to say anything because, you know, they didn't come to me. I know it's weird with them, and I don't even want to see them, and I don't even come to church that often because I'm afraid I'm going to see them, and so, you know, I don't even want to see them, and so, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, you're a coward. Try looking more like Jesus and initiate. How do I do it? Well, we have these things called phones. You can just use one, call them, say you're sorry, say you love them, say you want to be at peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Initiate reconciliation. Initiate reconciliation. What do I need to do to initiate now for the sake of peace? What do I need to initiate right now? Second thing that we see in Jesus 
is personally he sacrifices. Personally sacrifice. I'm going to personally sacrifice for the sake of peace. See, I can only personally sacrifice when I'm satisfied in Christ. But personally sacrifice means giving up something that I'd want to do for the sake of peace for someone else. Giving up something that I'd prefer for the sake of peace, you know? This is like, this is great when you watch a movie with your wife, you know? Personally sacrifice for the sake of peace, right? I want guns. She wants romance. I'd like romance later, so let's watch romance, you know? Like, whatever it is, you know? So personally sacrifice for the sake of peace, but this gets far more serious than what movie you watch, right? This is what money do you spend? Well, I'd really like to buy that new boat. I'd really like to get that new thing. Well, I'd really like to, I personally sacrifice for the sake of peace so that I can bring shalom to the life of another. I personally sacrifice for the sake of peace all the way up to the cross, giving my life like Jesus did. So what do I need to sacrifice now for the sake of someone else? That's a great question to ask yourself right now. What do I need to sacrifice now for the sake of someone else? What do I need to sacrifice now? Personally sacrifice. And if you really want to be a peacemaker, then here's the third thing you've got to do. Endure a little longer. Endure a little longer. That's what Jesus is doing. He's enduring a little longer. That means you keep praying for that broken family thing. That means you keep seeking for that miracle. That means you keep waiting. It means you keep loving. It means you keep giving. You endure a little longer. Question for you in that department, what seems hopeless right now that I need to keep fighting for? what seems hopeless right now that I need to keep fighting for? Is there something that you're ready to give up on? And God is saying, hey, um, I got something bigger for you. I got something more valuable for you. I've got a calling for you. Your highest purpose is not to have a ton of money in the bank. Your highest purpose is not to be the most popular person Your highest purpose is not to actualize your gifts to the fullest. Your highest purpose goes even beyond your gifts. Your highest purpose is to display the glory of God. And the great way that you can do that is to be at peace with him and then to have shalom within yourself and then to find avenues to spread that shalom every single day. That's a life that will make you happy. That's a life that will make you look like Jesus. They'll be called sons of God. You may know this story, 1956, five missionaries brutally murdered in South America by an indigenous tribe they were trying to share the gospel with. They went there to teach these people about Jesus, did everything they could to try to practically prepare for it. And then uh, with just in a few day, within a few days of them arriving there officially, this native tribe slaughters these five men. Their bodies float down a river in South America and journalists take photographs of their dead bodies and they end up on the front page of newspapers all over America in 1956. Life magazine runs a 10-page article about these men who lost their lives. It seems pointless, it seems hopeless, it seems uh, tragic in every way. And uh, a year goes by, two years go by, and truthfully most people in the world forgot about these five guys and about their tragic loss of life. One person who did not forget was Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to Jim Elliott, who was one of the five guys who was killed. And, um, and after a year, uh, she's still mourning and grieving her husband's death. And two years, she's mourning and grieving her husband's death. Really, I'm sure she spent her life mourning and grieving in some way. But, uh, but in the midst of her mourning and crying and grieving, God began to speak to Elizabeth Elliott. And God began to say to her, um, Elizabeth, I called you and your husband to reach this tribe for, for Christ. I called you to reach them with the gospel. And she's thinking, well, I know you did, Lord, but my husband was slaughtered. That's the end, right? I mean, that's the end of this. We move on. We, we try to recover. We try to move on. But God just kept pricking her and saying, no, 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 it's not the end. It's not in vain. It's the beginning. I, I want you to do something unimaginable. And so 
Elizabeth Elliot, if you know the story, does exactly that. She packs her bags, she takes a flight, and she lands on the same beach where her husband was killed. And she integrates with this tribe that murdered her husband and her friends. She learns their language, she learns their culture. Eventually, she meets the man who killed her husband, and she looks him in the eye. The man who stabbed her husband in the chest just two years earlier, she looks him in the eye and she says, I forgive you. I sought you out. I came here. I learned your language. I learned your culture. And I've extended forgiveness to you. I've taken initiative to reconcile. I've sacrificed personally. And I've endured. And the man is so taken aback. He is in shock and he says, what? What do you have? The man eventually turns his life over to Christ. Someone else in the tribe turns their life over to Christ and turns their life over to Christ, turns their life over to Christ in a very short time. A brutal, bloodthirsty, indigenous tribe sees its murder rates drop by 90%. And Jesus becomes Lord in that place. Blessed are the peacemakers because they look like God. They've got on his righteousness. They carry his potential. And they transfer his shalom. Yeah, I've just been thinking... We're seven weeks in here. I just keep getting these feelings. Wow, you know, what if we did this? Like, what if you made peace with someone today that you've been at odds with for years? What if you extended an olive branch to a person that doesn't deserve it? Not because you have to, but because the tapestry's been woven together in your heart and you want to. What if Christians did this? My God. You know, if we did this, we could see the least church region in the United States become the most spiritually vibrant place on the planet. If we did this, we could see this cold, bitter corner of the country called New England that has fewer Christians than any other place in America, we could see this place come alive with God's love. You know, if we did this, we could see churches spring up in every major city. We could see awakening come to our places of work. We could see families restored and healed and marriages brought back together. We could see peace in the home. If we did this, there is no end. If we just elevated to the capacity where we took initiative, hello, where we decided to cross the line, where we shared about Jesus with that friend at work, when we finally just did it, finally just stepped out and said, yeah, I feel awkward, so do I, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I want to step out. I want to be a conductor, God. I want to live in your, I want to carry the potential of Jesus. I got a prayer for you, a little breath prayer. Next week, don't miss next week. It's the final, the final season of, of, uh, of this. No cliffhanger endings. You can just read it in the Bible. That's what we're going to talk about. 
Here's your prayer. We're going to collect all these prayers, give them to you on one card so you can keep practicing the Beatitudes in your prayer life. Today I will live peace and give peace. That's your prayer. Today I will live peace. See, we just switched from, uh, from petition to declaration. It's time to start speaking some declaration over our lives. A declaration, God, today. I will live peace. I will live peace between you and me. I will live peace between me and me. And I will live peace between my brother and me. And I will give peace. I will put on your righteousness today. And I will carry it into the corners of my life. And I will share it with all those that need sharing. I'll reconcile with my brother. I'll be the first to initiate. I'll personally sacrifice. I'll love that person at work. I'll open my mouth and share about Christ. I'll do these things today, God. Because I know that when I do, you've already told me I'll be the happiest I could possibly be. There's no threat like that thrill and when I do you've already told me that I'm going to look like God I'm going to fulfill my calling to bear your image yes I say yes come on stand to your feet this morning let's take some time to worship Jesus and sing to him about our own brokenness and about his great grace I'll pray and then we'll sing. God, we welcome you into our hearts now. You're doing something unique in each of us. Jesus, is there someone we need to take initiative to reconcile with? Jesus, is there someone that we need to personally sacrifice for? Jesus, is there someone that we need to endure a little longer with? Jesus, I pray that you come. Teach us your shalom. Teach us to live in it. Work among us right now, Holy Spirit. We welcome you.